This morning we're in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 25, and I love to hear the the rustling of the pages as we open up our scriptures. This is a tremendous blessing that we have God's Word in front of us. It ought to be heartening to us as believers as we gather that when we go to the text, all these books are opening up before us. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 25, hear the Word of the Lord. It says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, truly You are the one that actually gives every single person on this earth breath. And because of that fact alone, You are the one who deserves praise from every single one of us. God, You speak to us as well. You invite us into relationship with us. And so how much more should we use every breath to bring You praise and glory and honor? And so God, as we enter this time in Your Word together, as we learn under Your Word and submit our lives to it, would You be honored and praised? And as we exhale as listeners now, would those breaths be breaths of submission and praise and honor to Your name? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It is not good for man to be alone. We heard it early in the book of Genesis as God's creating. And he says, this is good, this is good, this is good. There's one thing that's not good. And the thing that's not good is for man to be alone. As image bearers, as people are to reflect back the, the very nature and character of God, it's not good, he says, for us to be alone, for man to be alone. God isn't alone. He exists as one God, fully one, but also distinct in three persons. He exists as a unified trinity. And as His image bearers were to reflect back to Him, His glory, His greatness, His image, as those who know it's not good for us to be alone. But I would ask this of us, are we convinced that that is true? That it's not good for us to be alone? Because that was spoken before there was sin in the world, and that makes sense. That it's not good for man to be alone. But then sin enters into the world and now everything got a lot harder. Leading us to doubt whether that's true. Because when sin entered the world, relational carnage ensued. It didn't take long. Cain kills his brother Abel. Abel may have thought, maybe he thought when Cain came to him, it might be better to be alone. You know the sons of Jacob, they hated their brother Joseph. They wanted to kill him and said they threw him in a well and then sold him into slavery. Maybe Joseph thought at that time, maybe in the well, like maybe it's better to be alone. Is being alone good? Or can we trust what God says in the, the design of creation that it's not good for man to be alone? But we shouldn't just see our relationships and all the carnage that ensued from sin entering in the world just in light of creation and fall. We also need to see that Jesus came. And it was a distinct difference from that point on. That there's this, in the fullness of time, Paul says in Galatians, Christ came and He, and he gave Himself. 
He he suffered. He dies. He he raises to restore relationship with, with humanity and God, but also with humanity with one another. And yet, the problems continue. You look at the book of Corinthians, and it's right from the beginning. All sorts of relational carnage, all sorts of problems. We look here. Paul's astonished because relationships have gone awry. People are doing things they shouldn't do to one another by teaching false gospels. And the sort. So what are we to do? Well, as the people of God, who are empowered by the Spirit, what does the goodness of not being alone look like? What should it look like? How is there goodness in that? And I think that it's clear to us, hopefully it's really clear, probably was even more clear than we want to admit on the way here, that there are still problems in relationships. That there's still relational tension. So how are we supposed to work through this? And the good news is that Paul tells us. The scripture doesn't leave us wanting on how we're supposed to love one another in the midst of a fallen and broken place with fallen and broken people of how we're supposed to deal with one another. And he says, as those justified by faith, he's firmly rooted us down in that reality, that truth. We're sons of God based upon our faith in Jesus Christ, his finished work, his resurrection. And as those who are justified, we're to walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is to be for one another. And in this passage, it's to be for one another by, what does he say? By not being conceited, by not provoking one another, by not envying one another, by bearing one another's burdens, by confronting one another. That is that the Holy Spirit produces in us, not just fruit for our individual lives, He does do that, but He also produces fruit in us that that works its way out into our actions and our attitudes, it works into our relationships. And so Paul continues in chapter 5, this practical outworking of the reality of of justification by faith and the reception of the Spirit. He says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit. Now when the gospel is heard, the gospel that says that you, a sinful person, can have relationship with God, not based on your own work, not based on what you have done, but based upon the work of Christ and your trusting in Him. When that gospel is preached and received with faith, Paul is clear in Galatians 3 verse 2 that that the Spirit comes. Not because you've earned it or deserved it, but because He gives it upon hearing the gospel with faith. And the Holy Spirit, what it does is it brings life to dead people. Hearing the gospel with faith is to go from death to life. In the fullest sense of both of those words. Death to life. But we know as Paul has explained through these things that even though we have a new nature and a new root inside of us, that the flesh remains. And now this new nature is opposing the flesh, but the flesh remains. But believers, we we now live where we are to live by not the old way, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. We have this new nature that we're to live by. This new root, this new life that's in us starts producing fruits. All sorts of fruit. We saw a bunch of fruit of the Spirit last week. And it looks very different than the works of the flesh that were also listed. And so what the, the Spirit begins doing in those who have been brought to life by its working, by His working, is it starts producing the very character of Christ. The Spirit will always produce the character of Christ, or it isn't there. He isn't there, I should say. The Spirit isn't producing the character of Christ individually in our lives and working out into the relationships. Then the Spirit isn't in us. 
And so there's some outward fruit. Verse 25 goes on to say, if we live by the Spirit, that's that being rooted in the Spirit, being brought to life by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So there's no walking by the Spirit if there's not living by the Spirit. Right? There's, there's kind of an order there. Now your life, you've brought, been brought to life by the Spirit. And now that you have a new root, now fruit can come. Now you can live and walk accordingly. But we don't want to mix up the order there. There has to be life, and then from that life comes the fruit. Walk is the kind of the outward effects of the inward life that the Spirit has. And so you are to live by the Spirit, and if you live by the Spirit, then you are to keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, our, our inward is transformed and changed by the Spirit, now our outward is to be governed by that same Spirit. And so Paul constantly does this when he writes. He pushes into our actions based on who we are as new creations in Christ. In other words, we talked about this before, a little bit more technical way. He uses the imperatives, but he, he roots them in indicatives. Here's who you are. You're sons of God. And because you're sons of God, don't act like sons of God. And he does that here. You are in the Spirit now. Keep in step with that Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit comes to us and we're to keep in step with it. And he says how to do that. Verse 26, let us not be conceited. So the Holy Spirit comes, and although the flesh remains, the flesh seems to get way sometimes, right? It gets its own way. And here's one of them, conceit. And while the flesh remains, there's always opportunity for the flesh to come. And so Paul knows this, and he says, don't become conceited, because there's still opportunity for that to happen. Being conceited, being prideful, being arrogant, thinking more of yourself than you ought, being the center of the universe. Now think about this as believers. We know that justification doesn't come because we've earned it, but because Christ earned it on our behalf. That we're adopted, that we're brought into God's family, not because we have done something, but because God brought us in. That we're accepted before God, not based on our work, our performance, our good deeds, but on Jesus's. That we have forgiveness, not on, on because we have earned it, deserved it, paid for it, but because Christ paid for it. And so everything that we have wasn't earned, but was given to us by God's grace. Now on top of that, the Holy Spirit is given to us, and what does the Holy Spirit do? His constant role isn't to point to our work and our worth, but to point to Jesus' work and His work. Like a floodlight shining to Jesus all the time. That's what the Spirit does. Amen. And so it seems like, in light of that, that a conceit seems so contrary. So contrary to all of that. And yet it remains. Because our flesh remains. And so there are innumerable, innumerable ways of becoming conceited. I mean, you could pick, pick a topic. You can become conceited in that way. Money, race, your IQ, or the opposite of all those things. At least I'm not like one of those rich Christians who really doesn't suffer. I mean, we, we can spin it any way we want. We can put a spiritual spin on it. In fact, that happens. If you look in Luke chapter 18, in verse 11, there's a man praying to God. Keep that in mind. He's praying to God. This Pharisee is standing by himself and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Nom, nom, we could go with this tax collector. While praying, which maybe there he's already beaten us, right? Do, do we pray? <laughs> he might have just one-upped us right there. While praying to God, not a false I mean, he's trying to pray to what he knows as the right. He's trying to pray to God. He's full of conceits. I'm glad I'm not like that man. And so here's a spiritual spin on it. And we're capable of that. Man, are we capable of that? We can put 
this spiritual spin on conceit all day long by saying my theology is better than other people. My practices as a Christian is better than other people. My, my discipline is better than other people. And all those things, if we're, if we're conceited by them, all of them are anti-gospel. Our right theology, our right practice, our right discipline should always draw our gaze away from ourselves and to God. And they always humble. They never puff up. And so if those things are puffing up, then that's not right doctrine. And it's not right practice. And so I think the question is, when we're talking about conceit, isn't, are we tempted to become conceited? I think Paul assumes that we are, and so he says, let us not become conceited. The question is, in what areas are we tempted to be conceited? In what areas am I tempted to put myself in the center of life thinking that I am the one who is in the center and everything else flows around me? And this takes on so many forms that we can't even list them all. That's what home groups for. You can list some of them. Amen. Conceit is, isn't this like single sniper shot that's just like precise and narrow. It's a bomb that's dropped and there's shrapnel that hits the community. It goes all over. If you look at the end of verse 26, he says... Let's not become conceited, provoking one another. Doesn't keep to itself. Envying one another. I mean, this is the opposite of Philippians chapter 2, where he says, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He says, Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. It's, it's the opposite of what he said earlier in chapter 5, when he says, You need to serve one another in love. So one commentator says of conceit that it's, it's the, that it has these two daughters. Provoking and envying one another. In other words, conceit irritates and inflames. Doesn't serve and love. You might remember the greatest sports movie of all time, Saying a Lot. It's not up for debate. It's done. There is this great scene in Sandlot. I have a picture of this guy. His name is Phillips. Phillips. What a punk. This guy, they, they, we have these good guys playing out in the sandlot, right? Normal kids. Got their jeans on, got their butt. They're just out there. They're having a good time. These are the kind of kids that they're bringing their lunch. They're working hard. They're having fun just playing ball. And here you got Phillips and these, these bikers rolling up. And they think that they're awesome. First off, you, I couldn't find a picture that was good enough. But you can see, look at this jacket he's wearing. It's the middle of summer. right? Uh, around this scene, like the people are so hot that they have to go to the pool. You might remember that too. What are they doing wearing their leather jackets? Then they're rolling up and they've got full baseball uniforms on. They've got their bikes on. And then what do they do when they come? They, they obviously have this air of conceit about them. But they can't keep it to themselves. They can't do it. They roll up to these kids on the sandline who are minding their own business, playing some ball. And what do they start doing? Provoking. Provoking. And that's us. We're Phillips. That's hard to swallow. I'm Phillips. In our conceit, in our pride with one another, that's what we're like. Sin breeds sin. And so we can't just be conceited. We start provoking one another. We're envying one another. We move from conceit to, to provoking. And John said this last week, but these are things that are community killers. Conceit, provoking, and envy. They'll kill community. What unity can be had when its members are conceited? And then go around provoking one another, envying one another. You can't have unity when that's going on. Now I think that a good gauge, or a good question to gauge if these sins are problems in our lives, is to think about this. Can you rejoice when others rejoice? And, and can you mourn and suffer when others mourn and suffer? Because conceit 
kills that. You can't share another one's joy because you're thinking about yourself. You're the center of life. You can't share another one's suffering because clearly you wouldn't have to go that way because of what you are. Think of any kid's birthday party. I mean, just pick a kid anytime, anywhere. Think of any kid's birthday party. You can just mark it down. If you're going to watch well enough, just watch all the kids. There's going to be a kid that's going to melt down sometime in that party. It's going to happen. Just watch and wait. And untaught, right? You don't have to teach kids how to do this. They're going to melt down at their because it's not their party. It's going to happen. Some kid is going to start crying and being sad and worried that it's not their party. And what we do... Hopefully we don't do that here, but what what is often done is that instead of teaching our kids that it's good and right to rejoice with those who rejoice, it's a good thing that it's someone else's party and they're happy because of it. So doing that, we're going to give out party favors. Now there's good reason to have party favors, right? I'm not dissing party favors. But we do that for a reason, and some of the reason is we want everybody to share in this joy. We want everybody to feel left out and to learn how to rejoice with someone who's rejoicing. Party favors don't cure heart sickness. And I'm that kid. Literally, I've been that kid in real life, but like, I'm that kid. We can still be that way. And only the Spirit can free us not to be the center. Only the Spirit can free us from becoming conceited, from provoking, from being envious of others. Only the Spirit can free us to start considering others more important than ourselves. To start joining in as they rejoice. To start joining in as they hurt because I'm not the center. The Spirit is pushing me outward to look to others in love. And if the Spirit is is life in us, producing fruit, then this fruit is going to come through us. It doesn't come from us, it comes through us. That means then that if we have the Spirit, then we have no place for conceit because it is not producing that. It is producing something else. It doesn't produce, produce provoking or envy. It produces, it produces some outward looking in love. And so as we're beginning to see more and more, as, as Paul works out the practical implications of life in the Spirit, of keeping in step with the Spirit, we're seeing that life in the Spirit is life in community. It's living life in community, looking toward others. It's life with others and for others. But while the flesh remains, so does the opportunity for conceit and envy and a lot more. As Paul warns and and prescribes in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now in our last building at, on Rush Street, we, we did a major roof overhaul. So like there was a lot of nails, remnants left over in the parking lot. And here we did the same thing. We tore out some walls, had dumpsters out here, threw stuff in dumpsters. So once again, debris, nails and things in the parking lot. And so when I'm, when I'm walking around in the parking lot, I'm often, I do this sometimes because I care about you, but I don't often go out there specifically to try to find nails in the parking lot. I don't walk around searching for them, but I'm alert. I know there, there are nails here because of what's happening. We can redo the roof, nails. There's been all sorts of construction, nails. I don't want those in our tires. So like, I'm aware that there are nails that are present. And so as I'm, I'm going out, I'm not, I'm not searching on the ground, for, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm alert. I'm noticing. So if there is one, I can, I can get it. And this is the way Paul is prescribing us to be for one another. We're We're alert. We're thinking about it, and if there's something there, then we do something about it. 
I love what Tim Keller said when he said that Christians need to be neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. There's a good balance there, right? Now, why does Paul write chapter 6, verse 1? It's because he knows of the presence of sin in believers. That you're going to sin against others and others are going to sin against you. He knows that's our reality for those who still have the flesh with them. It's not just a possibility. It's, it's going to happen. And so we're not on a sin hunt. We're not being critical. But we're also alert that the flesh remains. And so people are going to sin. And so we confront. And so we need to be instructed as those who are dealing with other sinners as a sinner on how to deal with sin in one another. How to, how to pick up the nails when we see them. How to be alert for those kind of things and what that looks like. So once again, life in the Spirit is life in community with and for others like the, the Trinity. Of course, the, the Spirit is producing His very character and nature of God Himself, which is a, a one God in three persons. And the Holy Spirit turns our gaze toward one another. So you're seeing more and more that this, this loner mentality, being on your own, is, is a completely foreign idea to God. It should be a foreign idea to His people. And so in dealing with people's sins, I think Paul gives us the who, the what, and the how. The who, who's qualified to confront another in their sin. The what, what's the aim of our confrontation of pursuing others. And the how, what's the manner that we confront one another. So the who. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual. Now it's important to notice just from the the, the outset that, that it's a who. Now John... Mentioned last week that he, he writes up, he's an IT guy, so he writes up, you know, step-by-step instructions for his clients. He gives them screenshots, he circles things, he writes step one, do this, step two, very detailed instructions. But he also says that I give him my phone number. And what do you think they prefer? His phone number. They want to talk to him. And here's what God does, something similar. Like he doesn't just say, someone's in sin, here's the manual. And throws it down from heaven at him. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give a rescue manual. He doesn't give a rescue program. When someone is in sin, God doesn't send a manual from heaven. He sends His people. There's a who. You who are spiritual. There's a person going. So God's people are an extension of God's grace, of His love, of His care, of His judgment, of His mission. His people are an extension of all those things here and now. And so he says, here's the one who is to confront, because it is not just a program or or a guide, it's it's a person. He says, it's the one who is spiritual. One who becomes aware of another sin and is spiritual. Now that sounds kind of scary, but I don't want this to be off-putting when he says spiritual. This is not some elite SEAL team Christian that's going out after the, the sinner. It's those who walk, it's those who are led by, it's those who live by the Spirit. Another way to say that is that it's a Christian. It's a normal Christian. One who is trusted in Jesus and is not walking in rebellion and sin. It's someone who loves the Lord. It's a normal Christian, if there is such a thing. Because a Christian is someone who has been brought from death to life. I don't know if there's a normal Christian. It's a Christian. One who is spiritual. They are to carry out the work of God. They are to confront. One author puts it this way. By spiritual... Paul references the context of the previous verses which he addressed, the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the works of the flesh. And so if we intend to confront or find ourselves 
confronting a caught sinner by using the tools of enmity or strife or fits of anger, for example, then we are not the ones to walk with the caught sinner. Someone else who is spiritual, that is, given to the grace to engage the sinner with love, peace, patience, kindness, and self-control, has this job. Now that's the who. You're a believer. You're spiritual. Then you go and confront. So what's the what? What's the aim of our confrontation? He says, restore him. Now, once again, take action. Don't do nothing. Don't sit by When we see sin for believers, there's two options. You can cover that sin or you can confront that sin. Both should be done with love, but those are the options on the table according to the Scripture. So approach it. Don't ignore it. Pursue this person. Don't write them off. Go to them. Don't gossip. And do it all with the aim of restoring, of bringing them back. The aim of confronting is restoration. To put them back into their proper place, proper relationship with God and others. If you've ever been on a long plane flight, I know some of you have because I've done them with you. Hours and hours in the air in a smallish thing that flies really fast and really high. If you've ever done that, when you get back on land, there's this feeling. It's like it's reassuring. Right? You step finally back onto the ground. It's like, this is where I'm meant to be. <laughs> We're not meant to fly like that forever. Right? Ground is nice. Because we're restored. Back where we're supposed to be. And that's what we're aiming to do for one another. You need to be on steady ground. You're on unsteady ground. We want you to come back to where you're supposed to be. And so the aim is to put people back in the right place where they can function well. Where they are fully restored. So how are we to do this? Well, he says that the spiritual are to restore the caught sinner in a certain manner. A spirit, he says, of gentleness. This is the way in which we are to approach one another. This is the way in which we are to confront. And, and one who knows that I need to be confronted at times, I'm really thankful that this is here. I want gentleness coming to me. So think about that as you go to others. That's the kind of spirit that we're after. A spirit of gentleness. One commentator says, Unless any man should satisfy himself with assuming the outward form of confrontation he's talking about, he demands the spirit of meekness. For no man is prepared for chastising a brother till he has succeeded in acquiring a gentle spirit. If you're not in a gentle spirit, then you don't go. Because then you'd be in sin of disobeying this command to do it with gentleness. Gentleness is demanded here. There ought to be no confrontation in harshness. The right action is to be done with the right motive. Severity injures. Harshness hurts. In ways that God doesn't prescribe or desire. And so before confrontation, get a gentle spirit. Do a shred, the tiniest bit of honest self-reflection, and I think we can get there. Christians, should we get there? If we do honest, just a little bit of honest self-reflection, we should know how weak we are. How prone to wander we are. Doesn't that humble and bring gentleness when you approach someone who's sinning? Do some self-reflection to get a spirit of gentleness. And and in fact, this is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Gentleness. Let the Spirit produce what it's meant to produce in you. And so gentleness should mark our confrontation among believers. And Paul adds, at the end of verse 1, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Another thing to remind us that we need to go with gentleness. Because like, there's temptation all over this thing. You've got to be careful. 
So what sin is he talking about? Tempted with the same sin in which we're confronting? Tempted to maybe become, become conceited like he said earlier? And I would just say yes. And a million other ways. Yes! Tempted in all ways. Anyway, like we are so prone to weakness and sin. Our inclinations are so often away from honoring the Lord and loving one another. That yes, watch yourself. While the presence of the flesh remains, we, we are so susceptible to sin. It's, it's way worse than we think. Way worse than I think we think. And so when we're confronting one another, we, we need to know there's an opportunity here for the flesh, for me to walk in sin. And that's why Paul warns us here. That's why he warned the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. In 1 Corinthians, he takes a look back at those in the Old Testament. He says, look at all these people. How they were faithless. He, in a way, he, he takes us to the cemetery and says, Consider all of this. They're all gone. Because they didn't honor and obey the Lord. And he says, Look at their lives. They're an example to you of how not to do things. And this is what he's warning us here. Jesus gives this warning to his disciples as well. In Matthew 26, he's going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples this, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And here's why. That the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Those two words are good words for us as we think through confrontation. Watch and pray. You are prone to wander. Have a wary watchfulness. You can't be trusted. I can't be trusted. Watch and pray. This is difficult because we know like, oh, there's an enemy prowling like a lion seeking someone to devour, but he's not always roaring. That'd be, that'd be a silly tactic for a lion to come up on his prey roaring all the time. He doesn't do that. He's you know, sneaking around in the bush. And he's going to devour you if you're not paying attention. That's why Peter says, be careful. That's why Paul says, beware, watch out, keep a watch on yourself because we don't always know. The slope downward is gentle. It's easy. feels good. But it's going downward. And so, yeah, our enemy is real. Temptation is everywhere. Our flesh is weak. And so we have to keep watch. We have to do this rightly. Think about these things. Be wary. Don't trust yourself. Think about your own sins. This warning is meant to protect us. Not meant to paralyze us. Not to do no action because we need to watch out. But it is meant to protect us from sin. This doesn't diminish the command to go and confront a brother. And so for us, do we need to gently confront? Are there, are there things that we think about that people come to mind? Do we need to confront in order to restore? Do I need to get gentleness before I do it? Am I in anger? Am I trying to provoke? Or do I need to get gentleness? Now I think that this practice might need to be more normal in Christian circles. Not thought of as a foreign idea that we want to push back on, but a loving way that God has... Using us to, to care for us. And it might need to be seen as more loving than we normally see it. Certainly it ought to be seen as being faithful before the Lord. He commands us plainly to do this. And so to walk by the Spirit is to be for others. And at times that looks like confrontation. But it also looks like bearing burdens. And this is where he goes in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hopefully this is obvious to all of us, but Christians have burdens. 
Now, you didn't get saved and, and get zoomed, zapped up into heaven. I suppose God could have done it that way. He didn't. We have burdens, do we not? We have struggles. Things aren't easy. In fact, I feel like now, like I mean, this, everything is hard. Like there's not anything easy. Spurgeon said nothing is easy but eating pancakes, and I'm like, that's it. That's the only thing that's easy in life. Pancakes. Everything else is really hard. Christians have burdens. They always have. The history of Christianity is a history of burden and struggle and pain and turmoil, and it's never been easy. And it's always going to be that way. You read through Revelation, you're like, where's the easy time? Well, in Christ's kingdom, because the kingdom of the earth is joined with the kingdom of Christ, that's the easy time for those in Christ. But not until then. And so here we have this, this command, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And, and this is pretty broad. Alright, what burdens are we talking about? Well, there's a variety of burdens. We came in with a million of them ourselves. Like, if we collectively thought of all of our burdens, there'd be a huge amount of them. Right? There's a huge variety of them. And God intends for them to be shared among one another. This means that there's this, these burdens are shared in community. They're known because they're in community. They, they know one another and they're shared there. In other words, the, the Spirit is leading people to look beyond their own burdens to others' burdens, to others' needs. And immediately, probably what comes into your mind and your heart is, I'm, I'm going to object to that. Like, I don't got time to think about others' burdens. Like, you've not heard of my life. I have enough burdens on my own. Just me. And if you have a family, it's like it's multiplied by thousands. Like, I cannot look to others' burdens. I have a million burdens myself. And my family, they have a million burdens. I barely have time to deal with our burdens, much less thinking about somebody else. And then all their hosts of burdens... And one author says it really, really well. He says that the needs of others never seem to coincide with our availability to rise above our own needs. You ever feel that? Like they're here, need, need, need. Not like, I'm just trying to keep above water myself. How am I supposed to look to another? What am I supposed to do about that? And so the objections to this, this verse here are immediate in our minds and in our hearts. And they're prominent. They can't be done away with easily and quickly. And so what are we to say to those who are weary? Who have come in and they're just, I'm tired dealing with my own burdens. How am I supposed to deal with others who are doubting? I don't know if I can work through this. How am I supposed to help somebody else work through theirs who are, who are apathetic? Like I don't even... Yeah, burdens. Or who are wounded. I've tried and it's failed. And it's gone, how am I fit to deal with another's burdens? And so what are we to say to those? What are we to say to those objections? Let's say without discounting them at all. Those are real objections. Like you do have burdens. They are hard. Sometimes it does feel like you're treading water and that you're never able to swim to shore. But we need to recognize that all of our objections to this are full of unbelief. Let's be really clear about that. That if we have objections to fulfilling the law of Christ, then that is, comes from our heart that is full of unbelief. Burden bearing, he says, fulfills the law of Christ. In other words, this is what Jesus wants to be done. In and through His people, He wants us to bear one another's burdens. And all that Jesus asks, He provides. Every time. In other words, when we say, I'm not doing that because I don't have the strength, I don't have the time, I don't have the energy. We're saying, Jesus, you can't provide for that, even though you've required it. That's a harsh God, and I've never seen that in Scripture. All that He asks, He always provides. In fact, He gives us the Spirit. 
what's the Spirit doing? It's producing the character of Christ in us. The Spirit is working in us to, to help us do what Christ would do. Amen. So the Spirit comes in and empowers us and frees us to move us toward one another and for others. And so when we make these objections that I don't have time, I'm too burdened on my own, I can't deal with others' burdens, I'm too wounded, I'm too weak, all these things, we're doubting Jesus' provision and empowerment to fulfill His commands. We're doubting Jesus Himself, who as the crucified and risen head of the church, knows the cost more than any of bearing burdens. And how quickly we forget that the ultimate burden bearing that was done on our behalf by Jesus... And it's that burden-bearing that now frees us and empowers us to look to others and then bear their burdens because we have one who bore ours. And He's still with us. And He's helping us look outward. That's the character He produces in us. This is not to minimize or disregard our own burdens. We have a lot of real burdens and a lot of really hard burdens. I don't want to minimize that or discount those at all. Others, in fact, should be in on those burdens, helping us bear them as well. You see this? There's this mutual dependency upon one another. We need one another. And that's how God set it up. We need this dependency between our family, between brothers and sisters coming together, mutually sharing one another's burdens for the cause of Christ. And all of us, mutually dependent on one another, are fully dependent upon Jesus to supply for those needs, to handle these needs. So think of what kind of unity that brings. We all need each other. And we're all relying upon the same exact source to supply every one of those needs. Amen. That brings us together. Jesus will supply amply for the needs of His people. What a sweet gift that He gives us that we mutually depend upon another to bear burdens. Amen. But perhaps this unbelief in our hearts about bearing one another's burdens stems from a common misperception about our own lives that Paul seems to kind of almost in an aside tackle in verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Yes, you heard Paul right. He just called us nothing. And he called himself nothing earlier in 1 Corinthians, right? I mean, like we saw that, right? And he who plays in your waters, we're not anything. God gives the growth. Here he's like, you're nothing. That is so freeing to be nothing. We should love and revel in being nothing. The Holy Spirit creates and empowers a community where, where we're not a big deal, but where Jesus is everything and we're nothing. That's such a good community place to be in. That's where I want to be. Jim Elliott didn't put this on there, but Jim Elliott said, we're all just a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. Let's be that! And then we'll bear one another burdens well. My burdens, I'm nothing. What about yours? Let's bear those. So in thinking about bearing others' burdens, have we forgotten the fact that Galatians 2.20, we're already dead. Life I live, Christ now lives in me. And so our hesitations and objections to bearing others' burdens likely doesn't stem from our time problem or our own sense of our own burdens or our own sense of being weighed down by life and everything around us. It likely stems from arrogance. That we think that we are something. 
And the only remedy for thinking that you're something when you're actually nothing is to know who Jesus is, who He became nothing so that you could actually be something in the end. Bore the curse for us so that we wouldn't have to bear it and that we could be sons of God. And that Christ lives in His people by His Spirit. So that means that we live life together as nobodies. Bearing one another's burdens, exalting this somebody. Or for others, with His supply for others. And so all this talk about life in the Spirit and living in community, I think, in my mind, makes Paul's next words a little bit confusing. And I just made the case as hard as I could that you should bear one another's burdens. And then he's going to contradict me, I think. Or is he? Verse 4, he says, But let each test his own work, and then the reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. I don't know if you've heard us from the pulpit ever say, you should boast in yourself. Seems like a foreign thought. So Paul calls here in verse 4, as we work through it, he calls for self-examination. That is, believers are to keep in step with the Spirit. That was verse 25. By confronting, by bearing one another's burdens, by not provoking, not envying. And, and so the Holy Spirit is producing fruit in us. It's producing action in us as believers and, and to the flow out to other believers. And he says, this is something to test. What is your life producing? What are the fruit that you're seeing from your life? What are your relationships looking at? Is the character of Christ being, is it flourishing there? Is it being produced there in those places? Take a look at your life and see what it's producing. Are you seeing these right actions that come from these right motives? Because that's what he calls for here. But he goes further and he says that this self-examination might give believers reason to boast. So before we get worried that Paul is maybe confused or contradicting stuff that he says in other places... Or that he's just flat out wrong. I think the context makes clear that the work that he is talking about being boasted in is produced by who? Now this is important. Who produces the work that he says we might boast in in verse 4? Well, it's certainly not us, right? We saw the works of the flesh. Those aren't boastworthy. Well, that's what we are in our natural state. But he says you have a new nature. And in fact, you didn't deserve it. You didn't actually earn it. It was given to you when you heard the gospel with faith. You have the Spirit now. You have a new nature now. And so this new nature, this Spirit inside of you is producing life in you. It's bringing fruit out of you that's this love, joy, peace. But it's also moving out relationally where you're bearing one another's burdens. You're confronting one another. So who is producing these works in us? Spirit. And so when we're talking about boasting, we need to be really careful about, about what we're saying. Because we're, we're not boasting in something that we have done. The Spirit is producing fruits. The Spirit is freed from bondage to the flesh. The Spirit has freed us to be for others. The Spirit fuels obedience. And so Christians are marked by struggle with the flesh, but the Spirit fueling and continuing to form more and more obedience and more and more character of Christ in us. We know our struggle well, and so we know we don't have reason to boast in ourselves. But he says there is maybe reason to boast when you test your life because the Spirit's at work. It's doing something. Beyond that, the, the word boast is a future tense. You, you might have. You, you might have a reason to boast in the future. And so likely what I think that he's referring to is not now. There's not Christians aren't going to be boasting on the earth of their works here and now. That doesn't seem to be the, the context and what he's getting at. I think he seems to be, be pointing to that day. Day of judgment. Day of glory. Day of dread. Day of salvation. Day of damnation. That's the day he's talking about. The day that the, the sinners will come before God and give an account. They will either be judged and, or they will be saved. That's the day that he's talking of. 
Not here and now boasting, but a boasting in the future. And what we must know about that day, Paul gives us in verse 5. For each one, he says, will have to bear his own load. That's what we need to know about the day. Is that on that day that he's talking about that you might boast in, you're going to have to bear your own load. So while life in the Spirit is life in community with one another and for one another, this community is, is definitely other-oriented. It's a life that supports and encourages and cares and helps for one another. But he says each member is going to stand before God responsible for their own actions, responsible for their own attitudes, responsible for what they've done with the words of Christ. Responsible for what they've done with their time, with their words. We see all of these in other places in the Scripture. And so Paul, he, he strikes a delicate balance, doesn't he? One that I'm not as comfortable with preaching because I like to just push on one side really hard and not give the balance to that side because it seems like that is more fun. But he gives a delicate and wise balance between life and community and, and individual responsibility. And both are needed. And in fact, what he does when he does this is he corrects both, doesn't he? Like there's not one that's not being corrected here. We live in the West, it's a very individualized society and culture. We're corrected here with life and community. It's not like that way in other places of the world. They're very tribal, communal. They need to hear. You're not going to come in on the coattails of your family or your good merits of someone else. You need life and community. You're supposed to bear one another's burden. So we're, we're all being corrected. You're going to stand on your own, but you should have been doing something with your time that was for others. And so what he does is he cuts against things like a loner mentality. I can do this on my own. I don't need other people. I'm neglecting community. He says, no, you're going to stand for that. He cuts against that, but he also cuts against a victim mentality. A mentality that refuses accountability for our own individual actions. That always points to another and says, well, my problems are from him. If it weren't for that, and if it weren't for that, and never pointing ourselves, and he cuts against both of those. You don't have a loner mentality or a victim mentality. All of those are, are cut out here by Paul. He corrects both of them. He says, biblical Christianity is the Christianity that it sets you free to be life in community, but knowing that you're going to bear your own burdens before the Lord. You're going to stand before the Lord, and you're going to be responsible for what you've done. And so, biblical Christianity leads us to look to others, the needs of others, the burdens of others. But the focus of community shouldn't lead us to neglect our individual responsibility or even despise them. But instead, no, that's true as well. So that on that day, we can't and will not individually be able to give an account that's not accountable to these words here. You will give an account on that day. Each one, he says, will have to bear his own load. We're going to give an account for our actions individually. I can't stand with you. So what's that day going to look like? Doesn't the Bible always seem to bring conviction on every side? Have you ever felt that side? I was hammering community. Now I'm hammering individual responsibility. So every side. And the good news is this. Is that if you're in Jesus, you're justified. Amen. You are accepted. You're a son of God. You're a recipient of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that now indwells in you. God's presence is with you. The Spirit now empowers you to go and live these things out faithfully, even where it seems like, I don't know if I'm following this delicate balance of community and individual responsibility. How do I carry this out? Well, the Spirit's in you. All that God asks, He's going to provide for you. And what's the activity of the Spirit in us? 
to produce fruit individually and in community, in relationship to others. And so here's the command. Let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's keep in step with the Spirit by yielding our lives to God's Word. And may God help us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this community, this group of people here. And I want to pray that you would help us to faithfully carry out your commands that you have given us here on these pages. Thank you for writing Galatians. Thank you for correcting us in our sin. God, would you help us to be a community known for our love and orientation toward others. And we look around and see family and know that I want to bear those burdens because they're my family. But God, also, would you give us a weight, a sense of, of our own individual responsibility for you? Knowing that for all these things, all that you ask, you provide. That you're going to give us all that we need to faithfully walk before you so that you might receive glory and honor in the end. May it be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.